this morning, we're going to continue with our series that we started last week, The Promise of Christmas, The Promise of Christmas. And before that, I'm going to actually do something else because I almost just jumped right over Advent. I'm so excited for the word this morning, but I'm also excited to invite the, the Greenleaf family to come join me. Um, each Christmas, the weeks leading up to Christmas, we uh, light the Advent candle. And, uh, and the Advent, Advent basically stands for uh, the anticipation of the arrival of Christ. Now, we understand that Jesus has already been born. Thanks, Tom. Got my back. Um, Jesus has already been born, and, and really what we're anticipating is his second coming. But it's important for us to look back and remember uh, what that was like even before we came to Christ and before we were even born in that season of history where he hadn't come yet. And anticipating the hope, the joy, the love, the peace uh, that he would bring. And so this morning I've invited the Greenleafs to come and, and share with us about the second part of Advent, Advent which is love. Uh, last week we talked about hope, and so they're going to read a passage and uh, share a devotion and, and light a candle and pray for us. So go for it, you guys. Thank you. Thank you, Pastor Barry. We are the Greenleafs. I'm Tom. This is my wife, Mindy, and Solomon, and Esther. For those who maybe don't quite know us yet, I think you all know us now, but um, Solomon's going to read the scripture. John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, who that whoever believes in him shall not per perish, but have eternal life. Thanks, Solomon. Pastor Barry gave us five minutes. I'm going to try to shave it down to ten. Um, <laughs> he asked us to... Uh, to talk about love, and of course, love's a huge, a huge topic, and there's so much that we could say about, about love. We could talk about love for each other. We could talk about love for God. We could talk about not loving money, and there's, there's so many things the Bible has to say about love. It's a huge topic, so try to shave it down to what God's been speaking to me this year uh, about love, um, and when, when Pastor Barry first asked me about it, um, I, I love, gosh, it's so, so ambiguous, such a, such a big nebulous tub topic, you know, and then it dawned on me that the Lord actually spoke to me about love and specifically about John 3.16 and showed me something that, um, it's a topic that's kind of near and dear to my heart, but you know, it says that for God so loved the world, and that's a, there's three big words there, God, love, and world. Three, three big words that we could talk about, you know, we study God all our lives and never know all about him, right? And love, I mean, like I said, there's so much we could say about a love, love, right? And world, world's a big place. There's a lot we could say about the world. But what is, what is meant by the world? And in James, we're told, to don't love the world or anything in the world. And that might sound like some kind of a contradiction, but we understand that what James is saying is don't be like the world. Don't love the ways of the world. Don't let those things become idols to you and things like that. But we still understand what is meant by the world. And yet, it is for the world that Christ died. For the worst of the worst. For the least of these. Um, the whosoever's, the, the ragamuffins. When you think of the worst of the worst, who do you think of? Christ died for them too. And these, when they have forgiveness will find greater appreciation for grace than many of us will ever have, having been forgiven much. And Jesus challenged, I think it was Peter, and said, who do you think is going to be more for forgiven, you know, more grateful, more joyful for their forgiveness, the righteous or the sinner? Well, you know, I suppose the one that was forgiven for the most, right? I'm summarizing. Those people that 
who we consider the worst. I mean, think about it for a second. Who in your mind is the worst? Christ died for them. Not because he hates what they do so much, but because he loves them so much. And if God loves them, we should love them. And if God can love them, then God can love us. We are the world. The old 80s song had it right. Sometimes the same grace that I would be so quick to promise to the least of these, I deny myself. I'm so quick to tell people, God can forgive you. God loves you. Jesus loves you. I don't care where you've been. I don't care what you've done. God can forgive you. And then I carry around all this guilt and shame. Pastor Barry, during prayer this morning, shared a verse from um, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. And um, he shared a verse, and I think he's going to share it later, and I hope I'm not stealing too much of your thunder. I want to share another verse from, from the same song. Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king, peace on earth and mercy mild. God and sinners reconcile. I don't know where you're at with God today. If you're a sinner, you're in the right place. Because God's called us to be ministers of reconciliation. He sent his son to be reconciled to you. He acted in love when he could have acted in judgment, when he could have sent another flood, when he could have blown up the world. He sent his son. And some people might think that sounds like some kind of a cop-out. Well, why didn't he do something himself? Well, A, Jesus is God. B, what's harder? To watch, to, to go through some painful thing or to watch your child go through that? If your child... I know some of us are dealing, I don't mean to cut too close to the bone. I know some of us are, have some loved ones we're, we're concerned about right now. If that's your child laying in bed suffering and hurting, would you not be willing to take their chance right now? Or to, to switch places with them, would you not take that chance if you could switch places in a heartbeat? If either of my kids were suffering and I, God said, do you want to take their place? Yeah, right now. God did the hardest thing he possibly could by sending his son to die in our place. There's a couple of other verses I want to I wanna share today. And in my, my spiritual armor, these are my short swords. 1 John 3.20, For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. Sometimes it's, it's not even the devil that condemns us. It's our own heart. It's the memories, it's the pain, it's the guilt and the shame, and it's the resentment and all that stuff. And God knows all of that. And sometimes the devil doesn't even need to condemn us because we do it ourselves. And yet, whenever a heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart. And he knows everything. First John 4, 18. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We sang a song today. We sang about where my heart becomes free and my shame is undone. God came to save sinners. He didn't come for the good people. 
He didn't come for the basically okay people who just kind of had this sin problem. He came to reconcile with sinners. He came for the worst of the worst and the least of these and the lowest. And if he can love them, so should we. And if he can love them, he can love me. God loves me. And I'm so re-overwhelmed by his love right now to think about how much he just loves me. And for me this year, this has been a year of God just reminding me of that. Despite some circumstances in my life, despite some stuff that we're just going through, many mornings I've just woken up and sometimes I wake up and that, that attack starts and I just start feeling that, that shame and I wake up in the arms of Jesus saying, I love you, Tom. God's love is just amazing. And I want to encourage you wherever you're at with that, with God. He wants to be reconciled with you. Is there some reconciliation that needs to happen there? Whether you know him or not, you're in the right place. God's love overrides. I worked, um, I worked retail for 20 years. I'm not crying about that. <laughs> I'm just crying because I'm nervous. <laughs> I cry when I'm nervous. Um, I worked retail for over 20 years, and I've been a cashier, and many, many times in cashiering, you make a mistake, and you need an override, and you need the manager to come and correct the mistake. The override rights the wrong. It requires the manager's approval. God approves the correction in our lives. We are not meant to carry the mistakes of our transa transactions throughout our life. When you ask God to forgive you, his love abounds and he forgives you. You then have the permission to forgive yourself. When your transaction is made right, your next transaction will be smoother because you'll remember God's correction and his love to you. God's love overrides. And in the same way, in our lives, we each have an override key. We have the power to override transactions made against us. We have the power to forgive those people that hurt us. We have the power to forgive those people that meant bad for us. And when we do that and when we forgive them and we turn that key and it's forgiven, you're released of, of the burden and the hurt. And freedom takes over and takes place and peace takes place in your heart. That's God's love and that's God's intention for you. We're going to light the candle. Esther, you're up. It's a big moment right here. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for your love, your mercy and grace. Thank you for the message of Christmas. Lord, I thank you also for John three seventeen, For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world 
might be saved through him. Thank you, Lord, that you didn't come to condemn us. Lord, you came to save. You came to be reconciled. You came so that we might walk and and dwell with you. You came to dwell with us. And we thank you, Lord, that you still walk and dwell with us, that you love us so much. And we love you, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. stuff. Wow. I'm like, I'm not sure if I need to preach now. <laughs> it was a good word. No, it was great. The promise of Christmas. This just dovetails. This fits perfectly. Jesus came for sinners like you and me. That every one of us was deserving of death. And yet Jesus came for each of us. We're going to continue talking about these promises. If you open your Bibles to the book of Isaiah, the book of Isaiah, we're going to start in Isaiah chapter 11, and we're going to move to Isaiah chapter 9. And just as a, a preface or a warning, I've got a lot of scriptures this morning, and you might not be able to f- follow with some of those. Um, but as I dived into the studying for this morning, I realized that our subject today and the, and the words that we're going to look at, there's such a, a depth to them um, that, that we could be here for days looking at the, the, the aspects of Scripture and the verses that really support what it is we're going to be talking about. So we started this series talking about the promise of Christmas, the promise of Christmas, you know, if you've ever, uh, I, in fact, I asked this question, how many of you have ever been on the receiving end of a promise? Anyone? All right, we've all, re- right, so I promise I'm going to do something, or hey, I promise you're going to get this or that for Christmas, right? And, and we've also all been on the receiving end of broken promises, and so sometimes we can get all j- jaded in our, in our thinking, in our expectation, uh, we can start thinking like, oh, you made that promise, but, you know, you're probably not going to keep it, you know, and, and, and I don't know if that's where your heart's at. I've been in seasons in my life where the minute a promise is made, I'm already expecting the brokenness of that promise, and we have to understand it in Scripture that the way that God promises is not the way that we promise. He doesn't make empty promises. There's not a single promise in Scripture that will not or has not been fulfilled, because God's word is yes and amen in Jesus Christ. It will happen the way he says. Here in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah is writing some prophetic words that are pro- projecting and looking to a time that will be better than the moment that they're in. The Israelites were in a season of incredible darkness. Incredible darkness. Not a physical darkness, but a spiritual darkness and an emotional darkness. And as a nation, they were broken. They had been taken captive. They'd been carried off to other places. And, 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 and the biggest part of their darkness was this, that they had stopped hearing the voice of God. They had stopped hearing the voice of God. And so Isaiah paints a picture here of a future that will look different to what the present is. And I think we can all relate to that, that we've all had seasons in our lives where we're going, this is pretty bad, but one day I'm hoping that things will turn around. I'm hoping that this will get better. I'm hoping that there'll be healing. I'm hoping that there would be restoration. I'm hoping that the promises that this won't last will be true. 
and that there will be some kind of change and transformation. So we read in Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 through 3, these words, a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him and the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of the knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears. A prophetic word promise a looking through the window anticipating the advent and the arrival of Jesus Christ if we can put the verse back up there again it's these three words in the beginning or four words out of the stump um, it's it's one of those phrases in scripture that so often you're like well, what does that mean and, and in the prophetic uh, books we see a lot of uh, a lot of comparisons that, that the prophecy is like something else or, 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 or likened to something seen in nature. And I shared last week, and I want to show this again. There's a picture I have here of an olive tree, which is actually is an olive tree in the Garden of Gethsemane. This tree is over 2,000 years old. And one of the things about olive trees is that they go through a life cycle where they'll be alive producing fruit and then they die. And they're dead for a span of time until a shoot comes out of the trunk or out of the, the, the stump that's there and a new branch develops and that, that, that branch then grows and thrives and develops fruit. And so you see here a tree that's over 2,000 years old at the stump and, and, and in fact in the middle of that tree it's, it's hollow. It's died in the center of that tree and that stump doesn't produce fruit but now this shoot comes out and produces fruit. Isaiah, her painting a picture, and those who were living in that time would have understood the, the symbolism of the, the olive tree, that this, is, this would have been the case. That out of something that was seemingly dead, there would come incredible life. That's a promise of the Lord to his people. It's a promise to us. And while we're walking on the other end of the fulfillment, there's even more yet to come. And so our key verse for this is found a couple of chapters earlier in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, a passage that's familiar to all. In fact, uh, during prayer, someone was saying, you know, it's pretty amazing whether or not you believe in the Lord or not. Christmas is this one time of the year you're you know, walking through the mall or, or going shopping or driving in the car, and you're going to hear the name of God proclaimed in song, right? And there's just this general awareness, whether or not people acknowledge or not, that there's this awareness, and even in the word Christmas, which of course there's a lot of debate and there's, you know, right, keep, keep Christ in Christmas, but that's really, and we'll understand even the importance of that here in a second, Isaiah chapter 9. For a child is born to us, a son is given to us, the government will rest on his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. God's promise to us is that this child will not be like any other child that's ever been born in history. And that he will be called Wonderful Counselor, which is what we looked at last week. We unpacked those two words, Wonderful Counselor. Today, we're going to take a look at the words Mighty God, the name Mighty God. Mighty 
God. You know, God has a lot of names in Scripture, and uh, if you've ever studied this, you understand that, that his names vary quite a bit. Um, I want to look at a few of those names. In fact, we're going to put them up on the screen here. And there's a, a segment of his names that belo- start with the word L. Can we get those up on the screen? There we go. And so now there's other names, Yahweh and, and, uh, and Jehovah. There's other names that are used to describe God. But we're going to talk specifically about these L names. And Elohim is the very first name that's given to God. It's found in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God. Elohim. And, and, and there's no extra description that goes with that. It's just a statement. He is God. In the beginning, God. Elohim. This then was uh, reduced and, and taken that, that, that first part, E-L-L, was then tied to other names, El Elyon, God Most High, El Shaddai, which is one that we're probably most familiar with because we've heard it in songs, especially if you grew up in the 80s. Um, Lord God Almighty, El Shaddai, Lord God Almighty, El Olam, the everlasting God, El Kanah, the jealous God, probably one that's hard to understand Why would God be a jealous God? But when we understand the motivation for that jealousy and the fact that he is jealous for us, it's powerful, Elkanah. And then what we find here in Isaiah chapter 9, El Gibor, El Gibor, mighty God, mighty God. Why is this important to understand? Well, it's important for a few different reasons. First is this, is that we read scripture and we read mighty God and, and it means something to us in our language, but when we don't understand what, what the original language and how it was unpacked meant, we miss something of the nuance of what's really going on. And so El Gibor, mighty God, can also be translated this way, powerful champion, powerful champion, or, or, or this, divine hero. Powerful champion or divine hero. And so there's, a, there's an underlying meaning to mighty God that's more than just a descriptor. It's more than just oh, 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 painting a picture of what he might be or could be. But there's an underlying depth to it that's so important. The, the thing that I could think of that, that, that most resembles this would be uh, a boxing match. You ever watch boxing like on TV or watched a movie that's, that's all about boxing, right? If you ever watched Rocky, right? At the, before the fight, what happens? The, the fighters enter the arena and the ring and there's, it's not quiet. There's a lot of ruckus, there's a lot of music, and they'll come in and they'll have a whole entourage and they'll have their kind of their silky Right, right, robe on, right, and they've got their gloves on, and they're dancing, and there's this, there's huge pronouncement, especially if they're an undefeated champion, right, entering the ring, and there's just a booming voice, this powerful hero, this undefeated fighter, 
this champion of champions, is coming into the ring. And when Isaiah says that, that this baby would be born and, and that he would be called Wonderful Counselor, and then he says that he would be El Gibor, what he was saying is he's the champion. The champion just entered the arena. The divine hero just walked onto the scene. He's unlike anyone else. He's majestic. He's amazing. As I was studying this, I kept thinking, though, that these words don't fit. He says this, For a child is born to us, a son is given, and then he calls that baby Mighty God. And here's the song that popped into my head as I was reading this. One of these things is not like the others. One of these things no, doesn't you know belong. Can you tell which thing is not like the other? No, By the like time I finish oh my this goodness. song. This is from Sesame Street. Sesame Street. And they would have the picture and there would be three blue balloons and one red balloon. And they would sing the song. One of these things is not like the other. I didn't even grow up in this country, people. Come on. You know, what's funny is when I first moved to the States, I had people ask me sincerely, did, did you grow up speaking English in South Africa? And I said, no. I learned, speaking, learned, English watching, uh, learned to speak English watching Sesame Street. Really? No, not really. Because um, then all I would be able to say is near far come on you got to work with me go watch go watch an episode of sesame street one of these things is not like the other the word child and mighty god child and conquering champion they don't fit do they if you've raised children you know this babies are not mighty right they cry a lot they don't sleep at the right times. They're completely dependent on you for everything. Babies are not mighty. They're not conquering champions. Uh, unless they're conquering your sleep, then absolutely, they win every time. And, and I, I'm calling this the juxtaposition of Christmas. That's just a big word that says that these things don't fit. Isaiah 9 is a juxtaposition it's a comparison of two things that really don't belong together, or do they? They really, really do, and that's what I want us to talk about this morning. See, Isaiah doesn't say he will be called when he grows up, that there'll be this baby that's born and he will become a man, and once he's a man, he will be called. He doesn't make that distinction he doesn't give that caveat. He says right up front that this child will be born, a son will be given, and he will be called. His name will be Mighty God. His name will be El Gibor. I want to submit to you today, it's this fact that Jesus the baby was born mighty God. It's this fact that sets the God of the Bible and our Christian faith apart from every other religion and deity. It's the fact that Jesus was born mighty God. 
that sets us apart from every other system of belief that has ever existed and ever will exist in the, in the world. See, because it's the Christ child laid in a manger who is fully God and fully man. From the moment of his birth, he didn't attain to godhood, to deity. He was born fully God and fully man. And, and, and it becomes, in this moment, the power of all creation displayed in the most humble way. Power displayed in humility. It's what makes Christians and Christianity different from every other religion. You see, because there's no other faith where the deity, the divine, extend themselves to the created or to the being. And every other expression of faith, it is the responsibility of the follower to make their way to God. Yet here we find God of the universe, the mighty God, humbling himself and coming to earth as a baby. Relying on and depending on the care of Joseph and Mary. You know that Jesus is the only baby ever in the history of the world that chose to be born. There's never been a child before and there never will be a child who chooses their own birth. But God did. Jesus did. See, because as we talked about last week, Jesus as a part of the Godhead was present at creation. He is Elohim. He was present at creation. He was present throughout the Old Testament. He didn't just all of a sudden show up in a manger for the first time. He already was and is God, all-powerful, all-knowing. And yet he chooses in the midst of his deity, in the midst of his Godhead, to humble himself and come as a baby. Power displayed in humility. I believe that the cross and the manger together truly are the greatest display of humble service ever. And I think one of the problems with Christmas versus Easter is that it's easy to see the cross that way, but we don't see the manger that way. It's cute. The baby Jesus is cute. The scene is cute. And there's angels and there's singing and there's shepherd and there's sheep and it becomes, aww. Right? Yet at this moment, the power of all of the universe, God's majesty culminates in this moment in this manger in a lowly stable this is mind-blowing church and it's one of the dangers is that we can gloss through this season I, I tell you after doing the study this week I can't look at a nativity the same way I just can't because that baby was mighty God that baby was conquering champion. And all of creation knew it. All of creation, whether they, it was creation that submitted itself to the Lord's authority or the demons and, and Satan himself who had rejected all creation knew. See, Jesus, even as a baby lying in a manger, 
was mighty God and is mighty God in a couple of ways. I want to touch on two things before we come to communion in a little bit. See, he was and is mighty God in his nature and being. Even in that helpless state, he was and is mighty God in his nature and being. See, he is altogether other. He's altogether other. There never has and never will ever be another baby like that baby. See, because he was fully God and he was altogether other. No one like him. He was absolute deity. Absolute deity. Not, not on his way to, but absolutely deity. That, the, that the, the, the qualities that make God God were fully a part of that baby. Now, it's hard to wrap our hands, our heads rather, around the idea that a baby would be omniscient or omnipresent. And there's aspects of him taking on flesh that we just don't fully understand. And scholars and theologians have talked about this for centuries. And, and there's just places in scripture where we just have to go, we don't know. We don't know how it works, but that's what makes him God and us not. Amen? But wrapped up in that child was all of the qualities that make God, God. They had to be. They absolutely had to be. So as Tom alluded to, hark the herald, herald angels. Well, I got a different verse, so you didn't steal my thunder because it's not my thunder in the first place. Christ, by highest heaven adored. Christ, the everlasting Lord. Late in time, behold him come. Offspring of a virgin's womb, veiled in flesh the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity, pleased as man to, with man to dwell. Jesus, our Emmanuel, God in flesh. Church, this is powerful. It's powerful for what it means for us. See Hebrews chapter 13, verse 8 says this Jesus Christ is the same. Yesterday, today, and forever. In fact, it's this verse that is displayed in every four-square church. And you're going, where is it in our church? It's on our bulletin right across the top. It's there. <laughs> Why? Why is that important? Because of protocol? No, because we stand on this fact that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And can I tell you, it's one of the greatest reminders of Scripture that He doesn't change. He keeps His promises. He's true to His word that He is our mighty God, our conquering champion. Even creation acknowledges His might and majesty. Psalm 19, verse 1 The heavens proclaim the glory of God, the skies display His craftsmanship. Matthew 2, verse 1 and 2, Jesus was born in Bethlehem and in Judea during the time of King Herod. And about that time, some wise men from eastern lands arrived in Jerusalem asking, where is the newborn king of the Jews? We saw his star as it rose, and we have come to worship him. That all of creation, the stars included, and it's interesting to study the astronomy and what they understand of the heavens because they can go back and, and, and know what was happening because of the, the way that, that, that heavenly bodies uh, move in predictable 
patterns. And so they can kind of go back with models and computerization now, and they can go back to that date and that time, and they can understand what was happening. And there were things happening in the cosmos that, that have, had never happened before and haven't happened since at the birth of Christ. Why? Because all of the heavens declare the glory of God. And that in that moment when God became man, when God took on flesh, that the heavens couldn't help but declare his glory. Why? Because he's El Gibor, mighty God. Deuteronomy chapter 3 verse 24. O sovereign Lord, you have only begun to show your greatness and the strength of your hand to me, your servant. Is there any God in heaven or on earth who can perform such great and mighty deeds as you? There is no other God. There is no other God. Whether it's a false God, well, that's all there is other than him, is a false God. Or what people hold to be true. Everything outside of the sovereign Lord is an idol. Is there any God in heaven on earth who can perform such great and mighty deeds? Deuteronomy 10, 17. For the Lord your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords. And notice that there's capitalization going on. The Lord, which in Scripture, by the way, the, the word Lord is always all caps as a sign of honor. The Lord your God, capital G, is the God, capital G, of gods, small g. Because they don't compare, because they don't exist, because they're not real, but He is real. He is the great God, the mighty and awesome God, who shows no partiality and cannot be bribed. Exodus fifteen eleven: who is like you among the gods, O Lord, glorious in holiness, awesome in splendor, performing great wonders. So why is this important to us? Why is it important to understand that the Christ child was fully God, mighty, mighty God, even as he took on flesh as a baby? Why is this important? See, because if this is the greatest expression of humble service, it also becomes the greatest point of attack against our faith. Why do we have to battle keeping Christ in Christmas? Because it has been the goal of the enemy to get him out. Because it's on this fact that everything hinges for us. The deity and divinity of the Christ child is the thing that sets the Christian God and the Christian faith apart from every other faith and belief system. I already said that, but it's worth repeating. As such... It is this fact that is called into question more than anything else in regards to what we believe. See, because people will say, oh, I believe that Jesus lived. I just don't believe he was the son of God. There was a good teacher. In Islam, he was a prophet. In other religions, he takes on other roles because you can't ignore him. Right? You can't ignore him, so you have to do something, and so he becomes minimized. But here's the thing. We can't minimize mighty God. We cannot minimize mighty God. Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 5 through 8 says this. This is what the Lord says. 
Cursed are those who put their trust in mere humans, who rely on human strength and turn their hearts away from the Lord. They are like stunted shrubs in the desert with no hope for the future. They will live in the barren wilderness in an uninhabited salty land. But blessed are those whose trust is in the Lord and have made the Lord their hope and confidence. They are like trees planted along a riverbank with roots that reach deep into the water. Such trees are not bothered by the heat or worried by long months of drought. Their leaves stay green and they never stop producing fruit. I want to be that kind of tree. Amen. Cursed are those who put their trust in mere humans. Now, of course, the easiest application of this is, I'm not going to trust you. At least I'm not going to trust you with my salvation, right? And, that's, and that's, a good, that's a good application. But the bigger context is this, that if we diminish the Christ child to being a mere human, he falls into this category and it says, if Jesus is just a good teacher, then everyone who declares as such is cursed. He stops being their mighty God, their conquering champion, and becomes just another person. C.S. Lewis wrote it this way in Mere Christianity. I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would, be either a, uh, he would, he would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to now it seems to me obvious that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend. And consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. I would have rewritten those in my own, that in my own words, but there's just no way I'm going to compete with C.S. Lewis. I cannot, and he does not leave the option for us to simply accept him as a good teacher. And that extends not just from his adult ministry, but to the moment that he lay in that manger, fully God, mighty God. Our God. And the baby Jesus demands a response from us. Will we bow our knee as the shepherds did, as the wise men did? Or will we stand and go, well, the man Jesus, I can get my head around that, but the baby Jesus, not so much. That baby, God taking on flesh, became our salvation. 
Again, the greatest, greatest expression of humble service ever for you and for me. This moment in history when Jesus stepped out of heaven, everything hinged on that moment that Jesus would say to us, I will come. I will take on flesh. I will do this thing. I will make the choice to humble myself in that way. It becomes the key for us in understanding who he is and therefore who we are in his presence. But it's not just in his nature and his uh, character that we see this expression. It's also in what he's done. What he's done. Psalm 77 in his acts. Psalm 77 Verse 13 through 15. O oh God, your ways are holy. Is there any God as mighty as you? You are the God of great wonders. You demonstrate your awesome power among the nations. Be, by your strong arm, you redeemed your people, the descendants of Jacob and of Joseph. By your strong arm, you redeemed your people. By your strong arm. See, the arm of the Lord, the hand of the Lord, the power of God to save is he is mighty. He is our great, great champion. He is the one who will reach out his hand and rescue. And we see that all the way from Genesis, all the way through Revelation, that he never stops being the God who saves, the God who extends, the God who reaches, the God who touches. When we read the Gospels and we read about the life and the ministry of Jesus, we see this consistently in his life. We see it in the moment when Jesus goes to the temple at 12 years old. And he makes that statement, I must be about my father's business. See, there was understanding about this person, about what his task was. And that was not absent at the manger. That understanding was there. That understanding preceded the manger when Jesus chose to take on flesh and be born. Deuteronomy 7.21, no, do not be afraid of those nations for the Lord your God is among you and he is great. He is a great and awesome God. Gazing on and looking at the Christ child should give us a sense of confidence in our faith. Should cause something to well up inside of us regarding who we are and what we can do with the strength of God on our side. Psalm 24, verse 8, Who is the King of glory, the Lord strong and mighty, the Lord invincible in battle? He is invincible in battle. Why was it that God could take on flesh as a child and be in that humble state? Why, why would he put himself at risk? If not for the fact that before he was born, he knew he was invincible. The enemy could not touch him. Even as a baby, lying in a manger, in the, in the most vulnerable state we're ever in, in our lives. Even in that state, Satan could not touch him. Satan could not move against him. Because he was El. Gabor, mighty God. If there was any risk, if there was any idea or any inkling that in that state he could have been defeated, he would not have done it. But there was no doubt. 
See, because Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And whether it was as a part of the Godhead from the moment of creation until he took on flesh as a baby or grew into a man or hung on a cross or in his resurrected state as he now is is in, in heaven, he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Wow. So as we go to communion this morning, I want to remind you that he's not just a powerful champion or divine hero. He is your powerful champion. He is your divine hero. He is the one who came to save you. He is the one who took on flesh because of you. And can I tell you that the promise of Scripture pointing to the day that a Savior would would be born was not an inconvenience to God. Maybe you need to hear that this morning. You are not an inconvenience to God. You are not a bother to Him. He recognizes that we were lost and broken and could not fix and rectify our own situation. That we could not pull ourselves out of the muck and mire. And so the circumstances of our lives and the things that we're born into and the things that we choose for ourselves, whether they honor God or not, and so often they don't, we, we become stuck in the lie of the enemy is God doesn't care for you. you. God is bothered by you. And your response should always be, He is El Gabor. He is my conquering champion. He is my victory. He is my great reward. And Satan, in the same way that you couldn't touch him in the manger, you can't touch me. Because he has secured that victory in my life and for my life. Church, you are not a bother to God. If you were a bother, that baby would not have been born. But it was his great joy to take on flesh. Because he knew what he would secure for you and for me. See, Jesus stepped into the ring for you. Now, for those of you who loved music in the 80s, I was going to play Carmen the Champion. But I figured there was enough of us who would be like, what? Go check it out on YouTube or something. That's the picture that song paints. The champion. I don't know where it is in your life today that Jesus needs to be your champion. We come into a room like this and we're all facing different things in our life. Maybe, maybe you're on the top of the mountain and you're feeling the thrill of victory. And it may be you're down in the valley and you're feeling the ache and the agony of defeat. That El Gibor is there for both. That he will meet us in the midst of our pain, in the midst of our loss, in the midst of our sorrow, in the midst of our brokenness. And he was and will continue to be our conquering hero. And I invite the ushers to come forward. The greatest way that we can remember this, or the two greatest ways now, is looking at the manger, but also breaking bread and remembering the death. See, because if there was no birth... 
there would have been no life and ministry and ultimately no death. And the sacrifice of Jesus at the cross was the culmination of what he started in that stable, in that manger. That he came, he lived, he ministered, but ultimately the goal was that he would die and that he would become our Savior. That he would be our Savior by hanging on a tree, shedding his blood, having his body broken for us. Again, the greatest act of humble service the world has ever known, has ever seen. And as Hebrews writes, the writer of Hebrews says, it was for this joy that he scorned the cross, the shame that came with it, the pain that came with it. He despised it. He said, I don't care about that because of the joy set before me. You and I are that joy. We get to receive from him the life, the blessing, the victory that comes because he is our mighty God. I'm going to pray and then Usher is going to pass the plates. And you can take the bread and the cup and, and I just want you to spend some time with the Lord yourself. Feel free to partake when you're ready. Jacques is playing. We'll have a few minutes of worship and in, in, in a few moments the rest of the worship team will come up and we'll close uh, with a song. Don't feel like you have to rush this. Take, your, take a moment to be in the presence of the Lord, to thank God for being your mighty victor. Father God, I thank you today that you had a plan. Jesus, I thank you that in the midst of that plan, you responded to the call to come as a baby born in a humble setting, laying in a manger. But Jesus, in that moment that you were no less mighty God than you were when you hung on the cross. And so, Lord, I pray that we would receive today from you the victory that we need in our lives, the places of healing that, that need a touch from you, Lord, the places that are, are, are shattered, God, that need the pieces put back together. Lord, the places where fear exists, the place where doubt exists. Lord, those places where we've allowed ourselves to think that we're a bother to you. Today, Lord, that as we come to the table, that we would be reminded that it was for us that you were born and that you died. And as we receive the cup and the bread, the symbols of your body being broken and and your blood being shed for us, Lord, that we would be reminded that we have the victory in Jesus. And we give you glory. Amen.
Let her receive her King. Let every heart prepare Him room, and heaven and nature sing, and heaven and nature sing. And heaven and heaven and nature sees. Sing joy, joy to the world, the Savior reigns. Let Let's all stand.